Oh, all right. Well, I am. I'm excited to finally be able to dive in. So I think we should just go ahead and do that and get on ahead uh, with uh, Chapter 3, Section 9, The Civilized Capitalist Machine. The first great movement of deterritorialization appears with the overcoding performed by the despotic state. But it is nothing compared to the other great movement, the one that will be brought about by the decoding of other great flows. Uh, by the recording of flows. The action of decoded flows is not enough, however, to cause the new break to traverse and transform the socius. Not enough, that is, to induce the birth of capitalism. Decoded flows strike the despotic state with latency. They submerge the tyrant, but they also cause him to return in unexpected forms. They democratize him, oligarchize him, segmentalize him, monarchize him, and always internalize and spiritualize him. Well on the horizon, there is the latent Urstadt, for the loss of which there is no consolation. It is now up to the state to recode as best it can by means of regular or exceptional operations, the product of the decoded flows. Let us take the example of Rome. The decoding of the landed flows through the privatization of property, the decoding of the monetary flows through the formation of great fortune, the decoding of the commercial flows through the development of commodity production, the decoding of the producers through expropriation and prolat proletarization, all the preconditions are present. Everything is given without producing a capitalism, properly speaking, but rather a regime based on slavery. Or the example of feudalism. There again, private property, commodity production, monetary afflux, the extension of the market, the development of towns, and the appearance of manorial ground, rent, and money form, or the contractual hiring of labor, do not by any means produce a capitalist economy, but rather a reinforcing of feudal offices and relations, at times a return to more primitive stages of feudalism, and occasionally even the re-establishment of any kind of slavery. And it is well known that the monopolistic action favoring the guilds and companies promotes not the rise of capitalist production, but the insertion of the bourgeoisie into a town and state feudalism that consists of devising codes for flows that are decoded as such, and in keeping the merchants, according to Marx's formula, in the very pores of the old full body of the social machine. Hence, capitalism does not lead to the dissolution of feudalism, but rather the contrary. That is why so much time is required between the two. There is a great difference in this respect between the despotic age and the capitalist age. For the founders of the state come like lightning. The despotic machine is synchronic, while the capitalist machine's time is diachronic. The capitalist appears in a succession in succession in a series that institutes a kind of creativity of history, a strange menagerie, the schizoid time of the new creative break. We start in a just a hell of a way, uh, to be frank. But it's uh, basically them talking about the transition that happens as we move from despotic to capitalist uh, and making the point, I think, uh, that a lot of people tend to make that it's not so much markets or these other things that make a capitalist economy or make that moment change from the despotic over, that there is uh, things happening. I read this as that the state is basically spending time 
uh, between the despotic and the capitalist trying a whole bunch of different ways in order to settle into a new uh, socius. It's uh, just how I take it. I'd love uh, any other thoughts on this section because I have a few specific questions for anyone who's maybe a more, I don't know, Marxist uh, expert than I am. A couple of thoughts here. Um, in the last review session, we talked about how, and I, I think this is one of the more insightful points in the previous section, uh, there's this understanding of the state in terms of like the physical institution, right? Or like the despot themselves. But when we're talking about the state as desire, right, there's a way that the state as desire is flowing through objects and flowing through people. There's this relationship there. Um I think that's interesting, too, to Brooke's point about, like, what the state is doing, because we're talking about how a desire, or rather how desiring production is moving um, between these things. But to that, too, um, in that regard, even with feudalism, right, it's not just the state we're going to be talking about, um, right, because as, as we get into capitalism, we're going to see how, like, uh, the, the industrial, it, it, it's almost interesting in this sense, right? There's kind of like black humor in the sense that uh, feudalism has like the, the, the sort of certain kind of governance over the economy. But it, in a weird way, it almost seems like the economy is going to outrun that governance when we get into capitalism, although not in any clean way. Yes. Well, it, it, it's a lot of this is about them and this this chapter, this section, as I read it um, uh, last night, it, it feels like um, their goal here is to point at the uh, the thingness that is capitalism. And that's a lot of what they're attacking and they're having discussions around when we talk about Marx in this is the things that make uh, capitalism what it is and what we're referring to when we say that things are uh, for lack of better way to put it, more, more capitalism -er than the others, uh, sort of to take a meme and sort of play with it. So uh, this, this early thing, I think, is setting up a lot of that. Uh, to read from Doug, uh, who's, who's got a great little quote uh, from uh, Chapter 3, Section 1, uh, the social machine is literally a machine, irrespective of any metaphor, and as much as it exhibits an immobile motor and undertakes a variety of interventions. Flows are set apart, elements are detached from a chain, and portions of these tasks to be performed are distributed. Coding the flows implies all of these operations. Uh, and I know Lou wanted to get a little bit into this, and it actually may be time for us to have that sort of uh, short jump back to what the concept of decoding and coding really means and deterritorialization, the relation to that. Uh, Lou, did you want to jump in and give that a shot or did you want us to give it a try? No, I'd actually like if someone else could try to define any of this because I'm totally lost. Excellent. Uh, that's fair because uh, I'm not fully sure I necessarily understand it either. So, uh, does anyone want to try to crack uh, coding and decoding? I'll take a stab at making a beginning on it. All right. As, as I understand it, like coding is related to, in some ways, the signifying chains and sort of like 
uh, what things mean in a sense, although that's not exactly, there's kind of a qualification I'm glancing over there, but in the sense of like what things particularly signify, um, and that's particularly in relation to like signifying chains. It's like when we're talking about like um, coded flows, we're talking about how desiring production, there's this kind of, um, there's this kind of like meaning attached to it. So I think that's like, um, I'm trying to think of like an example we could use there, but um, while I'm thinking of that, in relation to territorialization, if I remember correctly, that's more directly related to like something like um, those gradients, those valleys and that, um, which are on like the, the body of the organs or more directly the socius. So like where the intensities are, especially in relation to disjunctions um, that the subject would pass through or that desiring production is moving through. Okay, maybe I can jump in with a real remarks because the, I think there are, we have again these two series of desiring production and social production and I'm not sure if mixing those up at this stage is particularly helpful because I think we have again the situation that they use territorialization, re-territorialization, deterritorialization in both of these domains, but they don't, but depending on what we are discussing, it doesn't always make sense to take the concept from the one domain to the other, or explain it with the other, um, if it is clear what I mean. <laughs> um, and in a when we talk about coding, I got the sense that coding actually concerns the direction of the flow of the flows. So um, we have actually, if we have a coded flow, that means that this code has a uh, that this flow has a direction. Like it has, it flows from a source to a to a target, and that's fixed. And in this sense, it's um, it's 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 um, bijective, right? You have exactly one source, and you have exactly one um, target. And that's kind of where I got with coding. But what I actually cannot say anything about, and that's kind of bothering me, is what the relationship between coding and territorialization is. When I think, too, like with coding, we're dealing with, like, conscription. So at least kind of how I understand at least a large portion of it is like as things are dealing with inscription and in that um, coding helps to sort of it's like you're saying like there's this kind of targeting but it also um, gives a way that it can be handled in a sense um, especially in a sense of like what it kind of is but uh in relation to territorialization, I think you get this a little bit more as they move into like the idea of luxury or like deterritorialized workers. But that seems to me to, or 
that seems to me to be related to like the intensities more directly and like how things would move through like more directly into like that third synthesis especially well so uh the way i've always uh, tried to think of flows i tend to try to think of things in really metaphorical or allegorical terms and i've always used the, the concept of a flowing river but if we think about uh think about the giant rivers running through say northern california and it's uh this this huge uh amount of water that before man was basically powering its way out to the ocean that's where it was heading at some point farms started popping up and parts of that river started getting siphoned off little bits here and there uh, and it would be used for if i had a duck farm it would feed my ducks if i had a corn farm i'd use it to grow corn the water essentially by being pulled off of those flows this sort of natural torrent uh, being used that's basically what we're talking about when we talk about the coding of flows that there is this natural desire this natural production of flow, all these things that are sort of very natural in the world of flows and they talked earlier about sort of the base desire being this flow that's natural uh codes are what make them uh do things they're they're how we take set it apart we put it over here oh this is for cornfields this is the water for this this is the water for that and the locations where these things happen the groups of people the societies this is the territorialization of of those uh the the issue is that this this metaphor works very well because this is sort of how things work in general we take these natural resources and we utilize them in production we're able to assign them we're able to set them up we get to code the flows that are very much around it uh production is a very primary code uh yes doug it's absolutely very very specific but uh when we talk about deterritorialization the the term uh, and they use it a lot early on, especially in the sort of beginning of this chapter when they're talking about the prehistorical times. Uh, deterritorialization is when we remove uh, the territory of the world. It's an anthropological term that they use here. And uh, it's the, the idea of when people have uh, their, their world deterritorialized, they no longer have the territory of, say, the Amazon, where these tribes have always lived, or the Sioux, and suddenly uh, they become effectively global. And because they're deterritorialized, they don't have edges to their kingdom. They no longer have, this is ours, this is our collective. The deterritorialization is really difficult for primitive cultures to sort of cope with. Uh, you're free to there's tons of books on this but it, for us uh, the idea is it's actually tough for just people who are born into this deterritorialized world as well uh, where they meet and how they interact i think i'm not fully understanding myself of decoding of flows because decoding is a thing that is i mean by nature uh, sort of feels nightmarish and almost um i don't know it, it feels uh as I start trying to find ways to really describe it, uh, it's difficult to do, but essentially it's the breakdown of uh, the ability for us to place desire into these things. And instead we are removing the code from the thing that has already been placed around it, uh, sort of unbridling that which has already been coded. And it's very difficult for me to sort of wrap my head around what they mean by that. Sorry to ramble. Um, I think one way of looking at it is that <clears throat> the territory is kind of like the grid on which um, 
the uh, the flows and the stores and the and the codes are laid out like on a chessboard or something. Um, and so, you know, uh, when you, when, you know, there's a, like the, the store, the stores are, for instance, resources that get used and then, uh, turned into something and then stored somewhere else waiting for another function to happen. And then the functions are the things, the flows are the things that take the, the resources and they modify them and, or transport them and then, uh, and then put them in another storage place. But where all those storage places are, and the um, the tracks across the landscape where the flows go, that that's the territorialization. And then when it's deterritorialized, then that's when different uh, different stores are put up different places, different flows between those different stores. So the whole the whole uh, panoply of different um, Trans- transformations occur that create different flows, different stores, different code. Right. And that's what they're referring to when they talk about, they give a handful of examples of sort of these, um, I don't know, transitionary periods between the despot and capital, where they talk about Roman, for example, uh, Alyosha already is typing about this. Uh, there's a qualitative shift between that pre-despotic and despotic moment and everything is sort of retuned to pass back to Rome because, again, the, the state, the, everything is trying to find a, a place to attach, a thing to attach in order to be able to drive, I don't know, uh, all these flows back to themselves. Um, they use a lot of the terms of, I don't know, they, it feels like they're using a lot of the terms of becoming expropriation, proletarization. You, I think you guys heard me having trouble even pronouncing half of these. Democratization, oligarchization, segmentalization, monarchization, internalization, spiritualization—it's the, these becoming. And those are those are to me. That's coding. That's what they're talking about here, right? Well, I think it's important to to recall too here that it's only in capitalism that we start dealing with the liberated, with, with like the nightmare of decoded flows more directly, because, uh, or at least to be more clear about what I mean. In the primitive and the territory, or excuse me, the primitive and the despotic machines, they're still very, very much concerned with decoded flows. So much so that the um, the despotic machine makes it a point to recode flows, as well as overcode them. Right. So, like, where they talk about like the state gets reconstituted in unexpected forms, that are, or rather, the despot gets reconstituted in unexpected forms. Right, democracy, oligarchy. That to me goes like hand in hand to codes and territorializations in the sense that like in a democracy, the following statement will probably not be disagreed with. And that statement would be one man, one vote or one person, one vote. Uh, Right. That's like a to me, that's an example of a code in the sense that like that's something we all kind of know what it means and we're all kind of invested in. Right. And then the territoriality of that would be like. Um, not just going to the voting polls, but like the the things that we do, the the way desiring production moves through different um, different aspects of what makes a democracy work or of the democracy machine.
And uh, my last question here before we move on, because I think we're going to be able to have this conversation for about the next 12 paragraphs. Um, the, the Marx's quote here, uh, in the very pores of the full body of the social machine, I don't actually know what they're quoting and they don't directly cite it. So if anyone has a, the only thing I could find is that uh, Marx has the comment, uh, capital comes dripping from head to foot from every pore with blood and dirt. Perhaps it's a different slight translation, but didn't know what they meant by using that quote. Hence, capitalism does not lead to the disillusion of feudalism, but rather the contrary, and that is why so much time is required between the two. The rest of this makes sense to me. They're, we're talking about not so much that it dis dissolves feudalism, it's that it's transforming it, and here's how this is working, and uh, the state may come like lightning, but these things are a little slower. But it's that, that Marx line I'm having trouble with. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the German version of anti Oedipus has more references, more footnotes. But I have to track down which of these um, quotes it is. It's, it's got to be a it's it's a non English translation, uh, obviously. So they did because there's no that I can find anywhere. Marx using the phrase in quotes in the very pores could not find that anywhere. But from every pore. Uh, with blood and dirt, capital comes dripping from head to toe. Is a it, it feels like I'm missing a poetic point there when that happens in the book. I, I think part of it is the agency. As I read that that piece, like it's not that capitalism undoes feudalism; it's that feudalism's undoing leads to capitalism's birthing. And I do have to actually, Muskie made a wonderful joke. I want to make sure it gets uh, with Lou's comment about how the German edition is extremely more cited and comes with a lot more. There is a there is an echo of Zizek's comment about every culture you can learn by their toilet, every culture you can learn by their footnotes, perhaps. A very good. <laughs> actually, I said that and I'm not even sure if it's true. I just saw that the footnotes in the English edition are just at the end. They are endnotes. Like the footnote I meant was the 66, which is there. Uh, is it, think, we do have I think that. that's even more applicable. Yeah. But well, we, we do have the reference uh, 66. I'm just trying to figure out this one line, but I'm, I can, I'll spend time doing that later. Um, let's go ahead and move on to. Uh, um, uh, the next paragraph, uh, which I think, again, continues with our concept that we were discussing. The disillusions are defined by a simple decoding of flows, and they are always compensated by residual forces or transformations of the state. Death is felt rising from within, and desire itself becomes the death instinct, latency. But it also passes over into these flows that carry the seeds of new life. Decoded flows, but who will give name to this new desire? Flows of property that is sold, flows of money that circulates, flows of production and means of production, making ready in the shadows, flows of workers becoming deterritorialized. The encounter of all these flows will be necessary, their conjunction and their reaction on one another, and their contingent nature of this encounter. This conjunction and this reaction, which occur one time, in order for capitalism to be born and for the old system to die, this time from without, at the same time as the new life begins and desire receives its name. The only universal history is the history of contingency. 
let us return to this eminently contingent question that modern historians know how to ask. Why Europe? Why not China? Apropos of ocean navigation, Bernard Braudel asks, why not Chinese, Japanese, or even Muslim ships? Why not Sinbad the Sailor? Is it not the technique, the technical machine that is lacking? Isn't it rather that desire remains caught in the nets of the despotic state, entirely invested in the despot's machine? Perhaps then the merit of the West, confined as it was on its narrow Cape of Asia, was to have needed the world, to have needed to venture outside its own front door. The schizophrenic voyage is the only kind there is. Later, this will be the American meaning of frontiers. Something to go beyond, limits to cross over, flows to set in motion, non-coded spaces to enter. So this is a place where I could say that, uh, you know, there there's a, um, a book about China and the... Uh, invention in China. And one of the things it says is that um, uh, given the Renaissance in Europe, um, the the technical, uh, you know, the technical level it was at, uh, the Chinese had discovered everything that they knew in the Renaissance in Italy a thousand years before. And not only that, they had uh, discovered them and forgotten and discovered and forgotten. And so, um, and so, but, but the, the, the one thing that the Chinese did not do is that they did not combine invention. When the, when they invented something, it, it stood as a separate thing until it was forgotten again and then rediscovered. But in the West, um, they would combine inventions. So that's why we have like 747s. Think of all the inventions that are in a 747 or any any kind of aircraft. There are there are myriad inventions in there that were discovered at different times and they're all synthesized together into, you know, this thing that flies through the air. And so and so that's the crucial question is why in Europe did they synthesize inventions rather than just inventing and keeping them separate and then forgetting them and uh, inventing them again like they did in China. Okay, checking. The only thing I would say to that is that, I mean, that does seem to be what they're getting at, but one thing I would wonder about or what I feel like we should be cautious about is there is a kind of common sense way you can approach this that leads to the Jared Diamond style conclusion, you know, guns, germs, and steel which it sounds very erudite and it, it, it does seem very compelling, but then it, it basically ends up being another form of determinism about, you know, Europe kind of inevitably just having all the right conditions to, to lead to this situation and, you know, the superiority of intellect or culture or whatever else. And I feel like they're saying something slightly different, you know, that when they're talking about desire, you know, something about the, the need to either exceed the, that limit that's always being displaced or, you know, instantiate detorialization at a larger scale or whatever it is, uh, that it's it's not quite the, that kind of crude anthropological hypothesis of the Jared Diamond type is, is all I'm getting at. Can you expand on what Jared Diamond means just for those who don't understand it? Like Sorry, that? so he wrote this famous book, um, Guns, Germs, and Steel. He wrote, he's written a bunch of books, and I feel like he's kind of the one that has been often in my mind when we've critiqued ideas of anthropology because he's quite an intelligent person, but like, a lot of his work is based on essentially observing like 
you know, tribes in Papua New Guinea and saying, oh, this is what ancient humanity was like. And there might be some reasons to do that, but there's a lot of flaws in that. But essentially, his, the guns, germs, and steel comes from this idea of the three major elements that led to, you know, Europe's ascension um, and, you know, germs having to do with, uh, you know, disease and bacteria that happened to be in Europe's favor after a series of plagues that ended up in, in the Middle Ages that, you know, when they went to the New World, wiped out other people's the availability of certain kinds of metals, of steel, the development of gun weapons in the particular way that they got synthesized in Europe. But all of that kind of, it feels very non-Dilusian in the sense that like that, there's no, politics isn't there. I mean, it's it's sort of ephemeral to all these just base technical conditions, which is kind of what they're critiquing. Like there's a, there's something about a kind of contingency. And I think they're right in a sense of not, maybe we would call it agency in everyday speech, but a kind of desire that animates political action and choice that isn't the same thing of just, oh, well, we, we happen to have these resources and we were just smart enough to kind of develop them in the right way. And that's why we're superior. It's I, it's much more than that. There's a kind of, I don't know, I don't know if they would call it the a disease of that society or, you know, I'm, I'm using crude language here, but my point is that they're, they're trying to answer the question of what's that missing element. You can't just point to a bunch of epiphenomenal characteristics and say, which is what everyone from racists to liberals do to explain Europe's ascendance and say, this is why Europe became what it is. There's something else that animates that society to go out and to, you know, brutally colonize most of the world. Um, yeah. Actually, I, I like your point there quite a bit. And I, I think one of the key sentences is where they write, it is not the technique, the, ter- the technical machine that is lacking. Isn't it rather that desire remains caught in the nets of the despotic state? entirely invest in the despot's machine. Uh, and to skip just a, a little bit further, the schizophrenic voyage is the only kind there is. Later, this will be the American meaning of frontiers, something to go beyond, limits to cross over, flows to set in motion, non-coded spaces to enter. In some ways, like I, I think part of what they're getting at here is like in Europe, desiring production wasn't, there's a way in which it went without the state. And this, we, the, the analog here seems to be, if you look at the U S especially during like, um, not really colonialization, although it is a form of colonialization, like the expansion westward, that seems to be an important analog here in the sense that one, they're calling this a schizophrenic voyage, right? A movement outside of the paranoiac. And two, that we're seeing, um, more directly this reoccurrence of a theme in this section, which is the way limits are broken and reestablished and often reestablished more, um, more largely. Well, one thing that should be remembered is that the Chinese did have an expedition where they went west and it was a huge armada and they, they visited, uh, India and, you know, other places, you know, maybe got as far as Africa um, and then went back and took back a, a lot of things, you know, exotic things from their voyage. But uh, after they got back, they decided not to uh, go further and and they became an insular uh, rather than continuing to expand based on that exploration. So it was a decision in China. 
Maybe another yep. thread we can pull some other time too in the kind of like post-colonial kind of syllabus we were talking about is, I mean, even if you think about the example of the Americas, you know, the, the moment that the Spanish crown decides to go out and really start properly expanding in, into the Americas is not long after they complete the like so-called Reconquista of territory from the Moors and the Arabs. And, you, you, you know, you could look at, I'm try, I think I'm reading in between the lines that there's something what Deleuze and Guattari are getting at about, you know, distribution of lack, about deterritorialization, that like that society at that time is incredibly in flux, going through a massive amount of changes, huge demographic shifts and huge economic upheavals and desperation. And there's a kind, there's something about that that led them, you know, to, to, you know, throw in their hat with all these journeys outwards and, they, you know, they liked what they saw and they, they decided to keep going because it was, you know, it was creating more opportunities and wealth that they ended up losing not too far later. Anyway, I don't want to get into that. But my point is that machine that gets created, uh, you know, there's there's a there's a weird form of statecraft and like crisis economy that le- leads to the, the birth of that like, colonial moment. There really is. And it's this is such an interesting uh I am. I will admit, I w- I completely had a misreading of this entire. I guess the next three or four paragraphs, and I'm not going to say what I was reading into it. But this this idea that uh, it's this the beginning of the the capitalist machine at the end of the despot is sort of the thing that made us start going outwards and conquering and taking territories. It's a it's it's a really interesting. Uh, Thinking of the the idea of uh, again, if we talk about the subconscious being a machine, everything's machines producing something down to every level, and then we have the societal machine that's producing, and they all function almost the same way. It's a really interesting way to look at societies and how we've moved forward, and it gives actually a really interesting explanation of why not China, why not all these other places, uh, why did we, why were why were the Europeans. Uh, or were we the ones who went out and did all this shit? An interesting way to look at it. Well, I, I just want to mention uh, mm. that, uh, you know, Constantinople uh, fell to the Muslim, and that essentially cut off the Silk Road. And so, um, and so you know, the Europeans wanted to find some other route, and they were desperate to find another route to the east. Uh, because of that. So, you know, there's there's a there's some sense in which, you know, it's like dominoes are flowing, one, uh, falling. One one event happens and another event happens, another event happens. Um you know, and the and and these historical events are all related to each other and and you have to kind of understand <clears throat> kind of like the big picture of what's happening during that time. That's great. Um and I, I, I should point out, I'll, I'll edit this out, but uh, I've, I've hit up a handful of people who are Chinese historians. I'll post who they are, and we should collectively decide who we would like to have. A handful would really like to uh, actually come on and discuss sort of because I'm very unfamiliar with the history of China. It will say from the 1700s up until, I don't know, Mao. I have a fairly decent understanding Mao on at least moderate, but it's a black hole otherwise. And I'd love to have some people on to discuss this because it feels like there's actually a, a good amount to learn from there, or at least to understand uh, Deleuze and Guattari's thoughts. So the quick thing, uh, uh, go for it, uh, Jack. Just to focus in a little bit more, um, while I appreciate the historical points, 
I think what's kind of key here is what they're talking about in terms of desire, especially in relation to death. So right, like they write, death is felt rising from within, and desire itself becomes the death instinct, latency. But it also passes over into these flows that carry the seeds of a new life. Decoded flows, but who will give a name to this new desire? They go on about the different kind of flows that are coming, uh, where they continue to write, and the contingent nature of this encounter, this conjunction, and this reaction, which occur one time in order for capitalism to be born and for the old system to die, this time from without, at the same time as the new life begins and desire receives its name. Now, that's a mouthful, but to make a few quick points there, I think what's key is that we're seeing desire and this death instinct merging, especially in this latent way, right? So, like, one of the big things I'm getting out of this paragraph is the way that the break is happening between feudalism and capitalism. It's not a smooth transition. As I'm as I'm reading this, it is a break. Um, so much so that a new life is beginning this time from without. So, right, like the we talked about how like the territorial, um, or rather the primitive, there's the, this movement from without into the within, uh, like an invasion happens, right? In, in a similar way, the what we're seeing here, at least in terms of like the despotic into, the, into capitalism, seems at least to have this idea that um, very much like the frontiers, there is this break with the state in that, which I think is probably kind of easy to see. And at least the, the basic point I made about the Asian um, European thing, which is like the, the why not Asia? Asia invested kind of like Ken said in their state, they stayed within, um, whereas Europe went without of it, without its um, despotic machine. They, they seems like desiring production started to see that this point about the death instinct and the sort of the degradation of that and breaks with it. Well, it's actually a really great way for us to segue into the next paragraph. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in and we can. Uh... Discuss again. Uh, I don't want to interrupt you too much, Jack, but this is just the timing is is great. Um, decoded desires and desires for decoding have always existed. History is full of them. But we have just seen that only through their encounter in a place and their conjunction in a space that takes time do decoded flows constitute a desire. A desire that, instead of just dreaming or lacking it, actually produces a desiring machine that is at the same time social and technical. That is why capitalism and its break are defined not solely by decoded flows, but by the generalized decoding of flows, the new massive deterritorialization, the conjunction of deterritorialized flows. It is the singular nature of this conjunction that ensured the universality of capitalism. By simplifying a lot, we can say that the savage territorial machine operated on the basis of connections of production, and that the barbarian despotic machine was based on disjunctions of inscription derived from an imminent unity. But the capitalist machine, the civilized machine, will first establish itself on the conjunction. When this occurs, the conjunction no longer merely designates remnants that have escaped coding, or consummation consumptions, as in primitive feasts or even the maximum consumption in the extravagance of the despot and his agents. When the conjunction moves to the fore in a social machine, 
seems on the contrary that it ceases to be tied to enjoyment or to the excess consumption of a class, that it makes luxury itself into a means of investment and reduces all the decoded flows to production, in a production for production's sake, that rediscovers the primitive connections of labor, labor on condition, the sole condition, that they be linked to capital and to the new deterritorialized full body, the true consumer from whence they seem to emanate as in the pact with the devil that Marx describes, the industrial eunuch. So it's your fault if... All right, so someone... Anyone know the industrial eunuch? Uh, I'll just start there because they end with an allegory I don't know. I mean, just for the sake of, like, the joke, right? The industrial eunuch sounds like castration, right? Uh, I mean, it, it does. Uh, to to quote, it's from uh, oh, Marx's writings. Uh, Karl Marx, Economic and Philosophical Manuscripts of 1844. That looks like 14. Uh, Private property does not know how to change crude need into human need. Its idealism is fantasy, caprice, and whim. And no eunuch flatters his despot more basely or uses more despicable means to stimulate his dulled capacity for pleasure in order to sneak a favor for himself than does the industrial eunuch, the producer, in order to sneak for himself a few pieces of silver in order to charm the golden birds out of the pockets of his dearly beloved neighbors in Christ. He puts himself at the service of the other's most depraved fancies, plays the pimp between him and his need, excites in him morbid appetites, lies in wait for each of his weaknesses, all so that he can then demand the cash for the service of love. Wage slaves. The merchant. The industrial eunuch. The producer. So, um, I don't know if that helps any uh, with anything, but I found it kind of interesting that this end of this, uh, like everything that is um, in the parenthesis, is translated very differently in the German um, translation. So, like, um, what comes after industrial eunuch is translated, and I'm translating on the fly and literally, Dear friend, I give you what you need, but dot, dot, dot. That, that makes more sense. <laughs> it, it makes more sense in, in terms of the concept of the industrial eunuch. So it's your fault if it, I don't understand how that relates to the text. But the idea that it's that the industrial eunuch is someone who uh, takes part in the system in order to be part of the system, make himself a couple of bucks, and then... Uh, uh, be part of sort of that chain of production. And so the, what's the German translation again? How does that go? What's the ending? Dear friend, I give you what you need, but... Uh, dear friend, I give you what you need, but I do need a couple back. And it's that, that please, please give me a few, a few coins. Hmm. All that so he can demand cash for his service of love is how Marx ends that paragraph. And I think that. So let's uh, let's take this one from the top, because this is uh, I think a lot is being said here. Perhaps I had too much coffee, but 
a lot of it is starting to make sense and maybe it's uh um first we have the idea that decoded desires and desires for decoding have always existed history is full of them uh, but we have just seen that only through their encounter in a place and their conjunction in a space that takes time do decoded flows constitute a desire uh, to me this sentence reads that only territorialized flows constitute uh, only territorialized flows uh, uh, can have decoded desires that uh, con that are constituted. This is how I read that. Uh, what do you mean? Can you say that again? I don't know if I follow you. Territorial uh, flows. So it, uh, the territoriality is when things are related to a very specific time and place. And their phrasing here feels like they're referring to that because it says uh, their conjunction in a space that takes time do decoded flows constitute a desire. So it feels like they're making a reference to the territorialized flows. Right. And I, I see what you're saying that, okay, so only in it, but only in that conjunction in that. Correct. Conjunction. No, it's very specific. Yes. They're, they're again, that yeah. we're talking about extraordinarily contingent moments. And so I'm just trying to piece through because every one of these paragraphs feels like it's saying something extraordinary that is then implied right. upon a previous one. And then of course, all that's changing. So, um, but then, so then they're saying, I guess, I guess then what I'm following from that is that if it, it can only be out of a space like that, that contingency that a decoded flow can come out of anyway. And when a decoded flow happens, they're kind of restating the point about lack when they say instead of just dreaming or lacking it, this decoded flow produces a desire machine that is at the same time social and technical in the sense that it now organizes an, another set of flows. But it's not just a bunch of random decoded flows. So they say in the following sentence, Capitalism isn't just when those decoded flows happen, because that does happen in different contexts, but by a kind of generalized decoding of all the flows. It, and it's that the, the massive deterritorialization is the thing that that matters here. And that's the part uh, that specifically, if we're going to talk about the conjunction that capitalism sort of attaches to, and they use the term deterritorialized a lot here, uh, that's ultimately what's happening. The conjunction of deterritorialized flows, the singular nature of this conjunction that ensured the universality of capitalism. They simplify it a lot. I'm going to skip a little bit. Um, when this occurs, the conjunction no longer merely designates remnants that have escaped coding. These are the decoded flows or consummation consumptions as in primitive feasts or even maximum consumption, the extravagant of the despot of the agents. When the conjunction moves to the fore in a social machine, it seems, on the contrary, that it ceases to be tied to the enjoyment or to the excess consumption of a class, that it makes luxury itself into a means of investment and reduces all decoded flows to production. Uh, so upon deterritorialization inside of this conjunction, you have coded, decoded flows that uh, uh, suddenly get reduced completely to production, effectively uh, uh, collapsing them. Uh, in a production for production's sake. And that's the reference to the concept of the industrial eunuch, people who are producing for the sake of producing. And this rings in my head, very true of American economy. I mean, the global capitalist economy is a given, but let's just take the American economy right now, where literally there are people, we have people producing things that are not being purchased. But we need things to be produced. It's uh, the the joke online. Uh, who thought capitalism would fall apart if people just bought what they needed? Turns out that's what's happening. And so, but we still have all of these things needing to be produced because we need these machines to continue to exist. And so that's uh, that feels like a lot of what they're talking 
directly. Yes, it's the planes that didn't stop flying after the lockdown. Uh, it's the factories that are producing garbage nobody wants, but they have to keep functioning or else the capitalist machine just breaks. Uh, but that's that's how I'm reading this. So it's it's to me, they talk about kind of there have always been these to say again, uh, decoded desires have always existed. Uh, desire as a uh, as a sort of exemplary, and in the classic times, these would get swallowed during territorialized times when we have our primitive. I have my tribe. Uh, in order to sort of blow off the steam, we would have these grand feasts, or we would. Uh, scar into our our chest these things. There's all of these things that we would do in order to sort of, I don't know, let off that gasket and get rid of the pressure of decoded flows. Uh, Under the despot, uh, that excess would be taken up by the bureaucrats, the priests, uh, the local magistrates. I've been playing a lot of Crusader Kings 3, and there's a lot of ways that that kind of gets blown off in this time. Yes, the perverts. Uh, But under capitalism, there's no because everything's purely deterritorialized there's no time there's no place there's no place for these things to attach and so these flows by decoding are nightmarish and these things start being done but they're not attached to anything they are production for production's sake everything collapses ultimately into it I really like this paragraph a lot. And it's uh, Jack. I don't. I don't think territorialization's gone. I'm more saying um, the 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 nature of how territorialization has functioned shifted. So de- the deterritorialized flow means that there is, and they, they talk about it in literally the previous. Uh, the meaning of frontier is something to go beyond limits to cross over flows to set in motion non-coded spaces to enter that the deterritorialized society they were living in has there's a boundary there's a it's literally right now elon musk is wanting to go to fucking mars for the same exact mental reason like that's how i read this is that this is talking about the idea of trump to fucking put a man on the moon in a manned base and then Musk wants Mars. These are where we have our current frontiers. These are the limits. So we're still there's still some level of of territory, if you want to say that. But we don't have a place, a time or place uh, meaningfully inside of how these flows and where we interact with them are taking. So I I think an example of this is where factories get moved. So if you think about it, if a factory moves from the United States to Mexico and then to China and then to, you know, Vietnam, you know, all of those flows uh, of material are, you know, they're 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 moving across the landscape to a completely different place. So whatever whatever flows there were around the factory in the United States, that suddenly is displaced to Mexico. That's suddenly displaced to China. And so, and so, this is a kind of deterioration of flows, because there's the materials coming into the factory, and then there's the finished goods coming out of the factory. But it's happening in a completely different place, and it doesn't matter where it's happening anymore. No, you didn't lose me. I was taking a moment. Sorry. 
It seems like it seems like what's being said here is that it's only when the uh, you know the social and uh, technical uh, machine can produce other machines. This producing of other machines is the you know seems to be the um, and then those other machines get conjuncted to produce other things. Which are and then other machines after that. So it's it's when the it's when the machines um, are so constructed that they that they're producing other machines that are then producing other machines. That's when the capitalism takes off. It seems that's what they're saying. I really, I just, I was rereading this and, and I was spending a little bit of time on Googling around on some of the thoughts. It's a really fantastic paragraph. Um, and chat is being fully recorded. We are streaming live to YouTube uh, for the hand people who are there. That's fair. Uh, Elon Musk is a broke-ass Willy Wonka who lives off of government subsidies and pretends he doesn't owe anyone to anything, anything to anyone. Um, I will continue to read, however. At the heart of capital, Marx points to the encounter of two principal elements. On one side, the deterritorialized worker who has become free and naked, having to sell his labor capacity. On the other, decoded money that has become capital and is capable of buying it. The fact that these two elements result from the segmentation of the despotic state in feudalism and from the decomposition of the feudal system itself and that of its state still does not give us the extrinsic conjunction of these two flows. Flows of producer and flows of money. The encounter might not have taken place with the free workers and the money capital existing virtually side by side. One of the elements depends on a transformation of the agrarian structures that constitute the old social body, while the other depends on a completely different series going by way of the merchant and the usurer, as they exist marginally in the pores of this old social body. In with the pores. What is more, each of these elements brings into play several processes of decoding and deterritorialization having very different origins. For the free worker, the detorialization of the soil through privatization, the decoding of the instruments of production through appropriation, the loss of the means of consumption through the dissolution of the family and the corporation, and finally, the decoding of the worker in favor of the work itself or of the machine. And for capital, the deterritorialization of wealth through monetary abstraction, the decoding of the flows of production through merchant capital, the decoding of state through financial capital and public debts, the decoding of the means of production through the formation of industrial capital, and so on. Don't know where to start. This one feels like a very uh, straightforward paragraph. Uh, does anyone have comments or questions on it? Because it feels like they actually did some very nice characterizations here. Uh, to quote Muskie, I think they characterize that logic as belonging to the tribal societies, whereas now we're moving to a different way of looking at things where there's a full body of capital. Hmm. Yeah, that was in reference to Aloysia. They were yeah, no. asking about like what uh, the like conjunction. Uh, there, there's a sentence in the previous paragraph where they mentioned like the capitalist scene, uh, society kind of resituates itself at conjunction. And I was talking about what the logic of conjunction is, right? But there's sort of partial objects that exist because they break off and redirect f flows. And that's the way that they kind of define machines. Um, and I was talking about how capitalism has sort of like 
resituated itself at that type kind of logic, but we're in kind of a different, but it's also kind of different, like, cause there's this full body of capital that is the socius that we're, you know, moving towards talking about in this section. The next paragraph. Yes. If so can I read it? Go for it. Cool. Let us consider more in detail how the elements come together with the conjunction of all their processes. It is no longer the age of cruelty or the age of terror, but the age of cynicism, accompanied by a strange piety. The two taken together constitute humanism. Cynicism is the physical imminence of the social field, and piety is the maintenance of a spiritualized erstat. Cynicism is capital as the means of extorting surplus labor, but piety is the same capital as god capital, once all the forces of labor seem to emanate. This age of cynicism is that of the accumulation of capital, an age that implies a period of time, precisely for the conjunction of all the decoded and deterritorialized flows. As Maurice Dobb has shown, an accumulation of property title deeds, in land for example, will be necessary in a first period of time, in a favorable conjuncture, at a time when this property costs little, the disintegration of the feudal system, and a second period is required when the property is sold during a rise in prices and under conditions that make industrial investment especially advantageous, the price revolution, an abundant reserve supply of labor, formation of a proletariat, and easy access to sources of raw materials, favorable conditions for the production of tools and machinery. All sorts of contingent factors favor these conjunctions. So many encounters for the formation of the thing, the unnameable. But the effect of the conjunction is indeed capital's tighter and tighter control over production. Capitalism or its break, the conduct, uh, capitalism or its break, the conjunction of all the decoded and deterritorialized flows cannot be defined by commercial capital or by financial capital these being merely flows among other flows and elements among other elements, but rather by industrial capital. Doubtless the merchant was very early an active factor in production, either by turning into an industrialist himself in occupations based on commerce, or by making artisans into his own intermediaries or employees, the struggles against the guilds and the monopolies. But capitalism doesn't begin. The capitalist machine is not assembled until capital, capital directly appropriates production, and until financial capital and merchant capital are no longer anything but specific functions corresponding to a division of labor in the capitalist mode of production in general. One then re-encounters the production of productions, the production of recordings, and the production of consumptions, but precisely in this conjunction of decoded flows that makes of capital the new social full body, whereas uh, commercial and financial capitalism in its primitive forms a merely in sorry, I'm losing myself. <laughs> in its primitive forms, merely installed itself in the pores of the old socius without changing the old mode of production. Yeah, I have the sense that they're outlining the logic of how capital becomes the full body of the socius, uh, but it's a little hard to follow. So I think it'd be worth talking about as a group because I'm not. Like, I get that last sentence, I think, where, like, commercial capital and financial capital exist in feudal society, right? Where you can have someone, like, in theory, put an investment in an artisan's business, right? And sort of re reap a profit off of that. That's the usurer, right? The, the sort of loan that you could get uh, in a medieval sort of feudal society. Uh, but the break that comes when capital becomes its own the the body of the socius as they would put it is sort of uh still obscure for me well one thing that strikes me there is like it seems like even the merchant becomes deterritorialized so like obviously the proletarization and that is really critical here but at this level of an industry in that 
it strikes me that like you start to get things like management and like um, owners in this different sense where it seems like, at least in terms of how I understand industrial versus commercial, like commercial consumption being like, and this is kind of like a basic point about how GDP is calculated, but like commercial consumption being what you and I buy, what, you know, what we consume in that level economically. But industrial consumption refers to how businesses are, are purchasing things. And at that level, that seems to be a new form of deterritorialization, or rather a new emergent phenomenon, a, a new turn of the screw, whereby even these institutions are be, seem to be kind of deterritorialized in relation to capital. I'm reminded of, well, maybe I, sh- maybe we shouldn't, I shouldn't get ahead, but I was reminded of stuff in the coming paragraphs by that point. Yeah, because to me, it's kind of like, why isn't the middle class happy, right? This seems to kind of speak to that problem of like, even with this point about like the bourgeois that we're going to see as they go through, like that kind of buffers against this issue of deterritorialization. But it seems to me also that like, um, this is why that point about luxury is really critical here, where that kind of investment and consumerism start to take a new role that was previously unavailable in the despotic machine. That new role being like one facet of the break, right? And, and, and I think I'm really reminded of what they talk about, where they talk about the flows of code in the, in the coming paragraphs. Well, and to that point where they write that it makes luxury itself into a means of investment and reduces all the decoded flows to a production and a production for production's sake. So like, right, like luxury becomes a kind of investment that's kind of, that speaks to like, obviously, like not only economically, but like the cathexis of it. Yeah. And what's luxury, but like a set of, you know, like you, you siphon off the, from the flows of consumer objects and it's this sort of like set that you record in your bank account or in your space around you, right, which kind of makes it a code. Um, I'd like, uh, if we could take a second, I think uh, Alyosha's idea about spending a little bit of time on Sweezy and Dobbs, uh, for those of us who are not super versed in Marxist thought or how it's mutated over the last, say, 100-ish years, um, it'd be great to have someone break that down a little bit. Alyosha, maybe you? Lou, I know you were talking about it a bit earlier, too. I'm learning on the fly here, baby. This is all live. We're doing it live. Yes. I found a site that is seems to provide a decent summary. It's a review of a book. Um, this is called The Birth of Capitalism by Henry Heller. And it's sort of summarizing the section on the transition of feudalism to capitalism and some of the debates between Sweezy and Dobbs. So I'm just kind of going through this, trying to find some useful quotes, if you give me a moment. No problem. Uh, I'll read uh, a little bit of the concept uh, that you did post. Um, Sweezy's debate with Dobbs coincided with the beginning of a systematic attack on the Marxist conception of a transition from feudalism to capitalism, as the radical writer Dominic Alexander outlines. The origins of the capitalist system in a series of revolutionary transformations, political, industrial, and even scientific, was once broadly accepted, sometimes celebrated by mainstream history. For over 30 years now, however, the relevance of the very concept of revolution to social change has been under systemic attack. 
One choice means one choice means of neutralizing the idea of revolution is to posit the problem of continuity and change in history. Approached with suitably myopic terms of reference, it is always possible to eliminate the discontinuities across time and to find that revolutionary phases, in fact, changed little. It is now possible to reject the very notion of a capitalist mode of production and any transition from feudalism to capitalism by claiming, for example, the long existence of a single world system of trade. This sounds like what they're talking about here, though, that capitalism isn't about the beginning of these concepts of trade or any of this, that these things, there's elements of all of these things. But the, the thing we're looking for specifically is capital appropriating production. That's what that's the moment that we switch from mercantilism to capitalism or feudalist uh, marketplace to that of capitalism. Oh, so at this time, uh, Orthodox Marxists were worried that if there wasn't a clear transition, then you couldn't name a clear capitalist mode of production, uh, which means you couldn't be specific about what you were talking about with capitalism. Yeah, D and G sort of have like an interesting take on that, right? Where there's there is a break, right? When ca when uh, capital appropriates production, that's that's a break. That's completely different from what comes before, and it is a revolutionary moment. Um, but it's also clear that there's this the, that process of like imbrication, right? Where elements of capitalism and elements of the sort of prior societies that they describe are, you know. Um, like concatenated their parts of each other. They're like Siamese twins kind of. Um, and I guess that's the end of my thought. <laughs> well, I think that's part of what's critical about how capitalism or rather the, the capital machine, however you like this situation, this conjunction, right? Like it's not even with this break that's going on, like where they write, for instance, um, when the conjunction moves to the fore in the social machine, it seems, on the contrary, that it ceases to be tied to enjoyment or to the excessive consumption of the class, that it makes luxury itself into a means of investment and reduces all the decoded flows to production and a production for production's sake that rediscovers the primitive connections of labor on condition, on the sole condition, that they be linked to capital and new deterritorialized full body the true consumer. So like part of the point is you can see like how the, it seemed like these three syntheses and even like how they once existed in relation to the territorial machine of the primitive, that can only be sort of rediscovered in within the context of capital. But in that rediscovering, it's, it's a rediscovering of the primitive territoriality. I'm reminded a lot of what they said at the beginning of this um, chapter, right? Where it's like, uh, it takes getting to capitalism to get to a universal history that is ironic and self-critical. If we only get to discover this, you know, primitive society through capitalism, that would be pretty ironic. And it would involve a degree of like self-criticism about what it means to produce this narrative about a primitive society. Yeah, and to that point, right, like, they're going to get into this more when they talk about how, like, capital is related to the, the alliance of affiliative, but, like, it it may be a break, but it's emerging as a break um, 
still with these, um, still in relation to these previous sociuses and these previous uh, territorial machines, right? Yeah, it doesn't threaten their idea of the unconscious, which is maybe interesting that they sort of, in the prior section, posited this idea of the unconscious. And now in this section, maybe they're almost working. Well, working backward doesn't make sense because the directionality of that phrase, but like outward maybe, or like they, they took this idea in the beginning and now they're kind of applying it to politics. And maybe that's not the right way to do theory, but it is, it is producing some interesting results. And I think it's worth, I'm, I'm going to push us to the next paragraph because I think it's, again, the next two or three paragraphs, I think is a lot of what we're discussing and brings up some of these points and it's worth diving through. Even before the capitalist production machine is assembled, commodities and money affect a decoding of flows through abstraction. But this does not occur in the same way for both instances. First, simple exchange inscribes commercial products as a particular quanta of a unit of abstract labor. It is abstract labor, posited in the exchange relation, that forms the disjunctive synthesis of the apparent movement of commodities, since the abstract labor is divided into qualified pieces of labor to which a given determinate quantum corresponds. But it is only when a general equivalent appears as money that one enters into the reign of the quantitas. Uh, God, my brain, sorry. Just the, that doesn't work with me. I don't know why I put an accent on that. Jesus Christ. Quantitas, they're delicious. I like the taco flavor. Um, which can have all sorts of particular values or be worth all sorts of quanta. This abstract quantity, nonetheless, must have some particular value. So that it still only appears as a, so that it still appears only as a relation of magnitude between quanta. It is in this sense that the exchange relation formally unites partial objects that are produced and even inscribed independently of it. The commercial and monetary inscription remains overcoded and even repressed by the previous characteristic and modes of inscription of a socius considered in its specific mode of production, which knows nothing of and does not recognize abstract labor. As Marx said, the latter is indeed the simplest and most ancient relation of productive activity, but it does not appear as such and only becomes a true practical relation in the modern capitalist machine. That is why, before, the monetary and commercial inscription does not have a body of its own at its disposal, and why it is inserted into the interstices of the pre-existing social body. The merchant is continually speculating with the maintained territorialities, territorialities so as to buy where prices are low, sell where they are high. Before the capitalist machine, merchant or financial capitalism is merely in a relationship of alliance with non-capitalist production. It enters into the new alliance and characterizes pre-capitalist states, whence the alliance of the merchant and banking bourgeoisie with feudalism. In, feudal, in brief, the capitalist machine begins when capital ceases to be a capital of alliance to become affiliative capital. Capital becomes filiative when money begets money or value a surplus value. Value in process, money in process, and as such, capital, value, suddenly presents itself as an independent substance endowed with a motion of its own in which money and commodities are mere forms with which 
mere forms which it assumes and casts off in turn. Nay more, instead of simply representing the relations of commodities, it enters now, so to say, into relations with itself. It differentiates itself as original value from itself as surplus value. As the father differentiates himself qua the son, yet both are one and of one age, for only by the surplus value of ten pounds does the hundred pounds originally advanced become capital. Okay, that seems like a really clear assertion of like what the break is. Uh, but it's also maybe debatable that like the sort of the before the capitalist machine merchant or financial capital is merely in a relationship with alliance with non-capitalist production. Say that one more time, sorry. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I feel like this reminds me of what we were talking about with the Sweeney debate, right? Where you know, is there really a clear distinction between these two moments in history? And I guess you'd have to have Deleuze and Guattari at their word uh, that before the capitalist machine, merchant or financial capital is merely in the relationship of alliance with non-capitalist production and not affiliative, that it, that it breaks in this moment in history and starts producing its own value. Yes. So, I mean, it's the idea that money can beget money is is the moment that, that things switch over from whatever they were before to the moment of capitalism. And that's, uh, Alyosha was asking about the last thing. Only through the surplus value of $10 does $100 originally advanced become capital. I, I, I put 100 bucks into a thing and... Uh, that's that happens. People have been investing in things forever. That's what usury is. That's what they said before. Uh, I know. I know it's supposed to be pounds. I don't care. Um, and want me to say francs? Want me to really get weird with it? Um, the the thing is, when I put a hundred dollars into a thing, and that hundred dollars literally just begets another ten bucks. Uh, like that's. We pretend that, oh, it, as it says, it differentiates itself as original value from itself as surplus value as a father differentiates himself qua the son, yet both are one and of one age. Uh, the hundred and the ten dollars are just, they're just basically pure symbol. Symbol beginning symbol. Signs. Hmm. I think the metaphor of it being filiative is, uh, is really interesting too in that sentence where like even though father separates himself from son they are one in the same age similar to that ten dollars that gets uh added on to the hundred dollars because of investment they're really it's really just money right it's just this you know generalized equivalency is marker for labor for abstract labor This last section, it looks it sounds like they're quoting Marx. I didn't look at the uh, end note. Is it Marx? It's got to be Marx, right? All right, uh, I'm going to move to the next uh, paragraph. It is solely under these conditions that capital becomes the full body, the new socius, or the quasi-cause that appropriates all the productive forces. We are no longer in the domain of the quantum or of the quantitas, but in that of the differential relation as a conjunction that defines the eminent social field particular to capitalism and confers on the abstraction as such its effectively concrete value, its tendency to concretization. 
The abstraction has not ceased to be what it is, but it no longer appears in the simple quantity as a variable relation between independent terms. It has taken upon itself the independence, the quality of the terms, and the quantity of the relations. The abstract itself posits the more complex relation within which it will develop like something more concrete. This is the differential relation dy dx, where dy derives from labor power and constitutes the fluctuation of variable capital, where dx derives from capital itself and constitutes the fluctuation of constant capital. Uh, the definition of constant capital by no means excludes the possibility of change in the value of its constituent parts. It is from the fluxion of decoded flows, from their conjunction, that the filiative form of capital, x plus dx, results. The differential relation expresses the fundamental capitalist phenomenon of the transformation of the surplus value of code into the surplus value of flux. Okay, now that's a really fucking interesting sentence. I'm sorry. The fact that a mathematical appearance here replaces the old code simply signifies that one is witnessing a breakdown of subsisting codes and territorialities for the benefit of a machine of another species, functioning in an entirely different way. This is no longer the cruelty of life, the terror of one life brought to bear against another life, but a post-mortem despotism. The despot become anus and vampire. Capital is dead labor, but vampire-like only lives by sucking living labor, and lives the more, the more labor it sucks. Industrial capital thus offers a new filiation that is a constituent part of the capitalist machine in relation to which commercial capital and financial capital will now take the form of a new alliance by assuming specific functions. Now, I want to go back to the one sentence, uh, obviously the one I said was very interesting. But uh, the differential relation expresses the fundamental capitalist phenomenon of the transformation of surplus value of code into a surplus value of flux. Does anyone want to tell me what flux is in this meaning? Well, he's referring back to fluxion, and fluxion is the Newtonian... Um, term for the uh, for calculus for the, the 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 relations of the quantities in calc so it's it's quite interesting that he's going back to calculus here because that's kind of like the central mathematical figure of uh, difference in repetition It's it's an interesting just an interesting phrase because it the to to sort of try to resay this and please tell me if this is off but they're talking about effectively that um, the surplus value of of code uh, isn't necessarily where capitalism the differential relation expresses the fundamental capitalist phenomenon the thing that is happening in capitalism that isn't happening anywhere else is. Uh, the transformation of the surplus value of code, the the coding of desires and the surplus value created there, uh, becomes a surplus value instead actually of flux and relations between things. Uh, and the relations between things then are actually the surplus value that we're discussing. 
I'm reading uh, Alyosha's line. In brief, the flows of code that are liberated in science and techniques by the capitalist regime engender a machinic surplus value that does not directly depend on science and techniques themselves, but on capital, a surplus value that is added to human surplus value and that comes to correct the relative diminution of the latter, both of them constituting the whole of the surplus value of flux that characterizes the system. It's a really really like that sentence it's having trouble understanding it but i like it anyway so i think human surplus value is gets at labor right labor is the source of value yes okay so then yeah so then as um labor value kind of changes, right? Depending on the types of machines that you're using and that they're getting at. So, so in the, you know, in the, um, you know, systems dynamics, the, it's, it's differential equations that are the, the, you know, the basis for the functions that take, you know, something from one reserve or one store to another store. So so it seems like what they're saying is that, you know, the the surplus value of code, code's kind of like a noun type of thing. It's a it's like the uh type the type system and the values in those types whereas the whereas the 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 flow itself, the flux itself is a relationship between two values that are changing. Uh, and so it seems like it's going from the noun type relationship to the verbal type relationship. The emphasis becomes on the, on the flow and the, and the, the differential equations that are representing the, the combination of those rather than the code, which are like, more like the types, variable, different types. Yeah, I mean that the sentence. This is uh, the differential relation uh, comparing the basically the labor power and fluctuation of variable capital, and also uh, its direct ra ratio to uh, the definition of constant capital, uh, which is the the sort of underlying. And that that relation, what that generates is is the flux. And so, really, what we're attaching to is the ever-changing nature of things is the surplus value we're actually fighting for. That is the, that's the nature of capitalism. That's the defining fundamental capitalist phenomenon. Hmm. It's interesting. It's kind of when uh, the emphasis changes from surplus coding, which is like overdetermined coding, to the, the, the relationship of flows to flows. And, and a good example of that is like derivatives, right? Derivatives are complex equations of relating different flows to other flows that were, were representing a bet of some kind. And what's interesting is that there's more money in derivatives than any other kind of money now. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, doesn't this section, wouldn't it just be a lot easier to understand if we just looked at it in the framework of like financial capital you know so the, this idea i was saying in chat of 
They say on 227, the abstraction has not ceased to be what it is, but it no longer appears in the simple quantity as a variable relation between independent terms, you know, using uh, money, not just as a store of value, but as, a, as an exchange value or whatever. Um, it has taken upon itself the independence, the quality of the terms and the quantity of the relations. Like it's, it sort of becomes, it starts to constitute the whole field itself. And then I guess you can think about I don't know. I'm definitely well, no. I, I I think I think I think you're spot on, and I would I would go so far as uh, I would go so far as to say that um, uh, I would I financial capitalism as we know it today is not a thing that they understood in the same way. I mean, even economists back in the day, the the concept of derivative markets as they've existed for the last 15 years is almost impossible for people to parse now, let alone 50 years ago. But I think if for shorthand, it would be very reasonable for us to say we're talking about financial capitalism, which is, as I think a lot of writers have talked about, a, a refinement of the relational efforts of capitalism. Uh, Governing by Debt is absolutely one of the best books on this, without a doubt. Um, yeah. there, there's a few. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll grab a couple others. But I, I think financial capitalism as we know it is the defining feature. Uh, they just didn't have it back then. And it's, I mean, it's interesting because, and then the next page, that sentence we keep coming back to, the fundamental capitalist phenomenon of surplus value of code becomes surplus value of flux. I mean, to me, that seems to indicate how value sort of, you know, it's the classic point of value decoupling from even bare exchange value or the function of a supposed function of a commodity being produced, but starts to become the kind of speculative thing, like when something becomes an IPO or you know, there's fears about buying power or even Bitcoin itself. I mean, there's there's so many angles I feel like you could go into this, but I feel like it that might be one small chunk of this that I kind of understand. <laughs> but remember, too, they're taking the pains to say uh, the conduct the conjunction of all the decoded and deterritorialized flows cannot be defined by commercial capital or by financial capital. These merely being flows among other flows and elements among other elements but rather by industrial capital. Well, this is interesting. And I wonder, I'm not, again, smart enough to know, but I have read both of those books by Lazzarato. Um, and I think some of this Marazzi that Brooks is posting in the chat. And the thing about Lazzarato is he's a very, he's a Deleuzian through and through. But there's a point he makes, and I don't know Deleuze well enough to know if this is a refinement of Deleuze or he's just restating the point. But in Governing by Debt and the Making of the Indebted Man, he talks a lot about you know, there's this idea of like runaway capitalism or like capitalism gone awry, or even among like left and Marxist uh, thinkers, if like this is a, a perversion of the true nature of capitalism. And the argument he kind of makes is like financial flows have always organized material flows that is never, they're not separate from them. And even if you think about like the great industrial ventures, or even if you want to go back to like pre capitalist forms of like we said, colonialism, other forms of like statecraft, you know, the, the so called abstracted flows that help to organize production in the first place. Basically, there's an argument. I wish I could come up with a quote. Maybe I'll look for it. They say this phrase repeatedly in those books, uh, Lazzarato does, of, you know, that the origins of the economy are not economic, that it's it's always political. There's something organizing those flows in the first place. And, and so I'm trying to square that with what you're saying, because I get that idea, okay, that industrial capital is the necessary precondition for all these other things. But then there's a scale and abstraction at which industrial capital has to be organized that is sort of inherently the business of financial capitalism. And if you think about like the massive, you know, the East India Trading Company, the, all these companies that 
were intimately tied up with the business of the not just the rise of capitalism itself in like England, but like the expansion of these markets all around the world. That seems to make intrinsic sense to me. So I'm just trying to square that those things together. So to to speak specifically about Marazzi, um, and I really do uh, suggest the violence of financial capitalism is amazing. It's about the 2008 crash and how financial capitalism separates itself out. Again, I I would use the I would think that the term refinement, as you use it, would make a lot more sense. Uh, also with Lozarato, um, I think both of them are deeply refining some of these ideas because again, the financial systems that existed in the 60s uh, did not come close to the way that they exist now. And the process of financialization and how these things have happened has been something that has been interesting over time. But we have some very specific things and and, um, and Marazzi goes deeply into this idea and I think it attaches, it's I, it hit me in the word words here, the idea of the surplus value of flux, um, the idea of that these crashes and booms from financial capitalism that now happen every 10 years or even more frequent if you believe some of the theorists, um, the the nature of these is that they aren't uh, some, oh no, this isn't enough expansion. We didn't have enough expansion. It's the nature of actually the chase of flux as um, would be phrased in this uh, paragraph, that, that that chase, that flux is the thing we're searching after, the, the relation between these things being the measurement that matters most. It's fascinating. I'm going to push us to continue on. Um, The celebrated problem of the tendency to a falling rate of profit that is of surplus value in relation to total capital can be understood only from the viewpoint of capitalism's entire field of eminence and by taking into account the conditions under which a surplus value of code is transformed into a surplus value of flux. First of all, it appears that, in keeping with Balabar's remarks, this tendency to a falling rate of profit has no end, but reproduces itself while reproducing the factors that counteract it. But why does it have to have no end? Doubtless for the same reasons that provoke the laughter of the capitalists and their economists when they ascertain that surplus value cannot be determined mathematically. Yet they have little cause to rejoice. They would be better off concluding in favor of the very thing they are bent on hiding. That it is not the same money that goes into the pocket of the wage earner and is entered on the balance sheet of a commercial enterprise. In one case, there are impotent money signs of exchange value, flow of means of payment relative to consumer goods and use values, and a one-to-one relation between money and an imposed range of products, which I have a right to, which are my due, so they're mine. In the other case, signs of the power of capital, flowing of financing, a system of differential quotients of production that bear witness to prospective forces or to a long-term evaluation, are not realizable, uh, anyone want to tell me what that means, and functioning as an axiomatic of abstract quantities. In one case, money represents... Uh, Oh, here and now. Not realizable here and now. In one case, money represents a potential break deduction and a flow of consumption. In another case, it represents a break detachment and a rearticulation of economic chains directed towards the adaptation of flows of production to the disjunctions of capital. The extreme importance in the capitalist system of the dualism that exists in banking has been demonstrated. 
the dualism between the formation of means of payment and the structure of financing, between the management of money and the financing of capitalist accumulation, between exchange money and credit money. The fact that banks participate in both, that they are situated at the pivotal point between financing and payment, merely shows the multiple interactions of these two operations. Thus, in credit money, which comprises all the commercial and bank credits, Purely commercial credit has its roots in simple circulation where money develops as means of payment. Bills of exchange fail, falling due on a fixed date, which constitute a monetary form of finite debt. Inversely, bank credit affects a demonetization or dematerialization of money and is based on the circulation of drafts instead of the circulation of money. This credit money traverses a particular circuit where it assumes, then loses its value as an instrument of exchange. And where the conditions of flux imply conditions of reflux, giving to the infinite debt its capitalist form. But the state, as a regulator, ensures a principle of convertibility of this credit money, either directly by tying it to gold or indirectly through a mode of centralization that comprises a guarantor of the credit, a uniform interest rate, a unity capital, capital markets, etc. <sighs> I'm reminded of a uh, Gabe Newell's the founder of Valve Software. Play a lot of video games on his platform. He made Steam. He's made a lot of money. He's also worth $5 billion. And someone wrote him an email. You can always write Gabe. Someone wrote him an email asking what it was like to have $5 billion. And his response feels like what comes from here. Uh, uh, it's not that I have $5 billion. It's not the same thing as when I made my first 500000 and I actually had money in my bank account. I'm more of a filter that money is flowing through, and I don't ever really get to hold on to any of it. It was a really interesting way to phrase it that I think is a really good metaphor for what they're trying to say here, that I'm not saying Gabe Newell is not rich. Gabe Newell absolutely knows he's rich, but he's talking about the difference between when he had $500,000 in the bank and he could pull it out. He could go buy a car, buy a house. He still has a lot of money to do that, but he doesn't have $5 billion to go buy a government or anything like that, that the money only exists sort of around him as he's able to make it real. It was just a really interesting way of phrasing it that uh, made me come to, that came to mind as I was reading this. The thing, especially today, not a lot of people understand the difference between uh, what they would call here uh, the two sides of capitalism. I think it's a really interesting and useful divide, one that uh, Lazzarato and Marazzi go over a lot. Uh, and I think modern Deleuzian writers and writers on economic theory really go over. But it's exchange money and credit money, the idea of being able to buy a thing, I've got enough money to go get my jewel or my Red Bull or pay a car payment, get gas, uh, and I did that because I got a paycheck at my job versus, you know, the richest men in the world who absolutely don't just have that money. I think it speaks to their later point as well about, um, they make a kind of side point, it seems, but it's a quite a good one, I think, about, you know, it's not that machines made capitalism, but the capitalism, like, makes the machines themselves. And I think that's kind of, like, the way money is looked at. You know, there's... You could just kind of think of banks and the state and all these big, you know, industrialists as well. It's just they have a lot of it. There's money and they have piles and piles of it, and then they can do what they want with it. 
but there's a kind of fundamental point about well, it's not they don't they're not just sitting on piles of money. They don't just have a lot of what you have. Scrooge McDuck. Scrooge McDuck does not have a vault. Yeah, exactly. So there, there's a different, you know, there's a, a completely different, almost like plane of existence that they're operating in. And that, ironically, the, the money that we see as the concrete thing is is sort of instantiated through that domain rather than the reverse. So I think that's interesting. Well, and it's, it's also interesting because we're talking about also um, the, the ability for people to have, at least in their minds and perceptively, that they produced or they have excess labor and that's what they're getting paid for. Uh, I go and I get paid. Uh, we're, we're no longer there. Uh, and also conversely that the really wealthy who once upon a time were Kings, despots, Lords, uh, whatever it may be, who were investing money, who were able to sort of chase that back and could, you could almost write a direct line. Here's my money. And I get 10% back because my, the company I invested in did well. We're well beyond that, that people are now investing money into money to get money out of it. And if you haven't, uh, The Big Short actually is a wonderful movie talking about how these things started to happen uh, and uh, really the 2008 crash. But they go into this idea of how money makes money and uh, that value of flux. Yeah, that's the value of flux. That's the break. You give me five dollar indicates a transfer of so much labor value. Yeah, it's it's again, we're talking about how how this has changed. Once upon a time I'd pay you to build a chair, but now you get paid out of a paycheck that's determined by these global factors of money making, money making money. It's we're very disconnected. Very disconnected. Um unless anyone has another point on this chapter, it, again, I feel these are fairly straightforward, but feel free to ask questions. We anyone here. I know there's a lot of you who I haven't said anything yet, but feel free to ask questions as we go, because I think a lot of this is straightforward, but it's worth us spending time on scribing through if there's stuff that we don't clarity on. All right, I'm going to move on. Uh, hence, one is correct in speaking of a profound dissimulation of the dualism of these two forms of money, payment and financing, two aspects of banking practice. But this dissimulation, dissimulation does not depend on a faulty understanding so much as it expresses the capitalist field of eminence, the apparent objective movement where the lower, lower or subordinate form is no less necessary than the other, it is necessary for money to play on both boards, and where no integration of the dominated class could occur without the shadow of this unapplied principle of convertibility. It is enough, however, to ensure that the desire of the most disadvantaged creature will invest with all its strength, irrespective of any economic understanding or lack of it, the capitalist social field as a whole. That is, I am highlighting and copying. Flows. Who doesn't desire flows and relationship between flows and breaks in flows, all of which capitalism was able to mobilize and break under these hitherto unknown conditions of money? While it is true that capitalism is industrial in its essence or mode of production, it functions only as a merchant capitalism. While it is true that it is filiative industrial capital in its essence, it functions only through its alliance with commercial and financial capital. In a sense, it is the bank that controls the whole system of the investment of desire. One of Keynes' contributions was the reintroduction of desire into the problem of money. It is this that must be subjected to the requirements of Marxist analysis. 
That is why it is unfortunate that Marxist economists too often dwell on the considerations concerning the modes of production and on the theory of money as a general equivalent as found in the first section of Capital, without attaching enough importance to banking practice, to financial operations, and to the specific circulation of credit money, which would be the meaning of a return to Marx to the Marxist theory of money. So, um, it just feels prescient, and I mean, in retrospect, it's kind of cute because, I mean, ultimately, that's that's where all the Marxist economists have gone. So, fair. Uh, any thoughts? Any questions here? I really like that line: "Desire of the most disadvantaged creature will invest with all its strength, perspective of any economic understanding or lack of it, capitalist social field as a whole." Yeah, it's I, I need to make money. Let me die. I, I, it's I need to go buy things. I, I just am. Yeah, COVID has has laid bare a few of these things a little bit to the absurdity. Beyond absurdity and its reality, we live in post satire. Um, but unless anyone has questions, I'm going to continue reading because again, this is burning through a few really good points, uh, but I think generally it has a good clarity to it. It, uh, I'm going to start asking people pointedly. Uh, Big Bad Bo, GG Pal, Hermes, Misha, Pocket Trains, Tiernan, any of you have questions about these sections so far? Because we're nearing the two-hour mark. Please. Anyone? Mm-hmm. Okay. Maybe everyone's a Russian bot. That's fair. That's fair, Jack. Um, let us return to the dualism of money, to the two boards, the two inscriptions, the one going into the account of the wage earner and the other, the balance sheet of the enterprise. Measuring the two orders of magnitude in terms of the same analytical unit is pure fiction, a cosmic swindle, as if one were to measure intergalactic or intra-atomic distances in meters and centimeters. This is really true. There is no common measure between the value of the enterprises and that of the labor capacity of wage earners. That is why the falling tendency has no conclusion. The quotient of differentials is needed is indeed calculable if it is a matter of the limit of variation of the production flows from the viewpoint of a full output. But it is not calculable if it is a matter of the production flow of the lay and the labor flow on which surplus value depends. <sighs> Thus the difference is not cancelled in the relationship that constitutes it as a difference in nature. The tendency has no end. It has no exterior limit that could reach or even approximate. The tendency's only limit is internal, and it is continually going beyond it. But by displacing this limit, that is, by reconstituting it, by rediscovering it as an internal limit to be surpassed again by means of displacement, thus the continuity of the capitalist process engenders itself in this break of a break that is always displaced in this unity of the skits and the flow. In this respect, Already the field of social eminists, as revealed under the withdrawal and the transformation of the Orstat, is continually expanding, and acquires a consistency entirely its own, which shows the manner in which capitalism, for its part, is able to interpret the general principle, according to which things work well, only providing they break down. 
crises being the means imminent to the capitalist mode of production. If capitalism is the exterior limit of all societies, this is because capitalism, for its part, has no exterior limit. But only an interior limit, it is capital itself, and that it does not encounter but reproduces by always displacing it. Jean-Joseph Gu, Jean-Joseph Gu's that's terrible. Why did I, uh, how do I pronounce things so terribly? That's awful. Go, go, go. Jean Joseph Go. Is that fair? Anyone? Uh, rigorously analyzes the mathematical phenomenon of the curve without a tangent. In the direction it is apt to take in economy as well as linguistics. If this movement does not tend towards any limit, if the quotient of differentials is not calculable, the present no longer has any meaning. Quotient of differentials is not resolved. The differences no longer cancel one another in their relationship. No limit opposes the break, or the breaking of this break. The tendency finds no end. Thing in motion never quite reaches what this immediate future has in store for it. It is endlessly delayed by accidents and deviations. Such is the complex notion of a continuity within the absolute break. In the expanded eminence of the system, the limit tends to reconstitute in its displacement the thing it tended to diminish in its primitive emplacement. So i just like to mention that... Uh... Gao, um, Gao, you thank know, he, you, God, Jesus. He wrote, Sorry. he wrote symbolic economies, and he wrote Oedipus. If it's the same person, I'm thinking. I, I believe so. Yes, I just googled. Yes. Anyway, I recommend those two books. They're really, uh, they're really good. Yeah, Jim Jovis. Oh, the okay. Yeah, G O U X. Gal. Yeah, the in symbolic economies. Uh, I didn't realize they referenced him in here, but uh, in symbolic economies, he talks about the uh, the the stages of the production of money, and then applies it to Marxism, and uh, I believe to semiotics. Uh, now that I'm reading a little bit more on Gao, it seems like it would be almost obvious that they would reference. Like, I, I, I need to read uh, some of his stuff. Uh, I'll link to it. We'll find a few books. Great. No, though. The Amazon listing brings the theories of historical materialism and psychoanalysis into play to illuminate and enrich each other. Looking closely at the work of Lacan, Derrida, and Nietzsche, I mean, it's like, okay, so ish the same um big ben bart mccoy did ask uh is the erstat the original and only state apparatus uh that wasn't clear yes I, that's that's uh, you basically just made it very clear that's essentially how they're using it um that's essentially how they use the term erstat I really like the phrasing of this, the continuity, the quote from this guy, the continuity within the absolute break. I, I really like that. I don't know if anyone wanted to, but 
this idea of like differentials not being resolved. If there's nothing to cancel the relationship or there's not a limit, then the tendency will find no end. It will keep creating new limits. It seems sort of intrinsically plausible to me just hearing it, but I wonder if anyone had any further commentary on that. No, it, it feels like the, the nature of uh, almost disaster capitalism, which has been a really great um, sort of term in theory lately, this concept of how things inside of our system are continually shattering, showing that the system is broken, yet somehow the system is able to reconstitute find its own new limit and once again continue towards that until it gets there, destroys itself, and does it all over again. Uh, it feels it feels very uh, intuitively true to me. I Again, I think like you, I don't necessarily have a reason for that or a logical direction. It just feels it's a really nice uh, way of looking at it, putting it. I'm going to read uh, the next paragraph, uh, unless anyone has any more questions about that section. This might be, this will be the last paragraph, and then we will uh, hold and we'll take a vote on whether to continue tomorrow or make our way through. So, for now. Now, this movement of displacement belongs essentially to the deterritorialization of capitalism. As Samir Amin has shown, the process of deterritorialization here goes from the center to the periphery, that is, from the developed countries to the underdeveloped countries, which do not constitute a separate world, but rather an essential component of the worldwide capitalist machine. It must be added, however, that the center itself has its organized enclaves of underdevelopment, reservations in its ghettos, as interior peripheries. Pierre Moussa has defined the United States as a fragment of the third world that has succeeded and has preserved its immense zones of underdevelopment. Really, just because I have to bring up the stat every time, Alabama has a lower infant mortality rate than any country now. One story. And if it's true that the tendency to a falling rate of profit or its equalization asserts itself at least partially at the center, carrying the economy towards the most progressive and the most automated sectors, the veritable development of underdevelopment, periphery, ensures a rise in the rate of surplus value in the form of an increasing exploitation of the peripheral proletariat in relation to that of the center. Or it would be a great error to think that exports from the periphery originate primarily in traditional sectors or archaic territorialities. On the contrary, they come from modern industries, plantations that generate an immense surplus value, to a point where it is no longer the developed countries that supply the underdeveloped countries with capital, the opposite. So true is it that primitive accumulation is not produced just once at the dawn of capitalism, but is continually reproducing itself. Capitalism exports filiative capital. At the same time as capitalist deterritorialization is developing from the center to the periphery, the decoding of flows on the periphery developed by means of disarticulation that ensures the ruin of traditional sectors, the development of extroverted economic circuits, a specific hypertrophy of the tertiary sector, and an extreme inequality in the different areas of productivity and in incomes. Each passage of a flux is a deterritorialization, and each displaced limit a decoding. Capitalism schizophrenizes more and more on the periphery. It will be said that even so, at the center, the falling tendency retains its restricted sense, i.e., 
the relative diminution of surplus value in relation to total capital, a diminution that is ensured by the development of productivity, automation, and constant capital. So let's go through uh, this paragraph, and then uh, we will say our end notes for the day. Um, they 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 make a very early hard point that this isn't about uh, capitalist countries uh, and non-capitalist countries uh, interacting or having trade. That uh, ultimately, what we're talking about here is. Uh, as the tentacles of capitalism extend out from, say, the United States and Europe uh, to the rest of the world, those countries uh, actually become uh, deterritorialized by the nature of it. And as they do, they actually begin producing capital unto themselves and sending capital back. It's it's an interesting, their, their quote here in the middle, um, it would be an error to think exports from the periphery originate primarily in traditional sectors. Uh, or archaic territorialities. On the contrary, they come from modern industries and plantations that generate an immense surplus value to the point where it is no longer developed countries that supply underdeveloped countries with capital, but the opposite. Uh, and this is accurate. As far as I know, that's absolutely accurate um, from how trade is functioning globally at this point. It, what's interesting is they would have been writing right around the time of mass sort of transitions too, right? Like in the throes of the, uh, the, the increase, the acceleration of offshoring and, and I, like I would that. say that they're writing uh, before it. Uh, the, the, in the 50s, uh, which I think a lot of this, their sort of early thoughts, and in the 60s, they were just starting to be a thing that were sort of, sort of being done, but it was always seen as, uh, oh, we'll, we'll begin trade with uh, Vietnam. We'll begin trade with uh, Korea. Uh, Korea, Japan were uh, sort of bigger ones in U.S. history with, with how we did trade. Uh, but the idea to think that we were just doing trade with these countries rather than they had modern industries and we were actually deterritorializing them in the process is, I think they were, that's fairly ahead of the curve as far as timing goes. Well, I'm just curious because I, I know at least maybe the rumblings of offshoring are, are starting on this time. I was also thinking about I just was looking up Wallerstein, if anyone's read him, um, Wallerstein and the whole world systems theory kind of school of thought. Um, I wonder, and I was just looking, I don't know if it's exactly concurrent, but 1974 is one of Wallerstein's earlier texts. But I'm just curious if what other sort of sources to that movement might have been active in this time as well, because a lot of these arguments really seem to resonate with the whole that, that world systems like Marxist kind of approach. Um, and I do have, it's been one of my bucket list things. I have the th first three volumes of Wallerstein's uh, like Capital and the World System uh, that I've always wanted to delve into. But at that point of like, they're not separate zones, but these are increasingly part of, because it's impossible, it would be impossible for capitalism to stay within, you know, capitalism in one country. That kind of like nationalist fantasy of like modern right-wing movements is just a contradiction in terms. It doesn't make any sense. So I think that's really interesting. But yes. <laughs> Anyone have any other thoughts? Come on, let's go with it. Lou Muskie, someone. Yeah, what do you mean, Lou, about Balibar? Because I've actually never read Balibar. Uh, I don't know much more than that Balibar and Wallerstein work together. 
there you go. Smoking gun. And uh, Samira Min, who they uh, specifically cite here, uh, specifically his thing is being a world systems analyst. I don't know if you mentioned that, but that's literally what he does and what his books are about. More things to read. We'll have to, in out, up, outgoing documents, we are just going to have so many PDFs uh, tossed up there to read. Yeah, I just wanted to mention, I'm still uh, collecting all the literature that we are talking about in this Zotero library I'm setting up. So we'll have the references. Excellent. Thank you very much, Lou. All right. Well, we are uh, past halfway in this section, which I did not think we'd get this far because I think reading it, it's uh, it feels more dense than it actually is. It's very, very particular. So uh, thank you guys for joining. The The uh, question would be, to, do we tomorrow uh, continue and actually burn through the rest of this section, or do we want to do a review section through uh, the first half of this? Um, my vote would be for continuing, so I will be creating a poll. We'll continue tomorrow. Uh, it's in the chat. If you would uh, give a quick thing, we continue straight through. Um, and then we will figure out when to have a review section at some point. Looks like that's going to be the answer. So please continue with us tomorrow uh, here. Same bat time, same bat channel. And we will uh, uh, be moving on to uh, second half of this. And I think we will spend a review session going through literally everything. I'll find a time to schedule it later this week uh, because I do not want to miss uh, our timing. But thank all of you for joining. Uh, thank you, uh, all five of you who watched us on YouTube. I did record this whole thing. This will be on, on YouTube waiting if you want to see what chat was doing with eggplants and emojis and all kinds of things, you people. Um, and all of the fun memes they were posting. But... Uh, thank you guys very much for joining us, and uh, that's it. I think we'll end there.